Hello everybody, welcome to our new world. Very first episode. I'm genuinely quite honoured that you're allowing me to talk anonymously into your ear. So thank you so much for tuning in, really, it, it means a lot. The whole point of this project is that we want to be giving people voices, we want to be creating discussion, we want to be hearing from you guys. So I do really hope you get something from this. Be in touch and let us know, please. So our first series is on women in the world. I have learned so much just talking to some of these guests. I hope you do too. They're all amazing women. They're all doing incredible things for our planet. So we're going to kickstart with a really, really amazing guest talking about environmental leadership. The guest is Patricia Zurita. Now, Patricia is the CEO of BirdLife International, which is the world's largest nature conservation partnership. If you don't know what that means, have a listen because she explains it really well. And what she describes fits perfectly with what we're trying to do here, actually, at Arnie World. And that's focus on these three values of curiosity, action and collaboration. Patricia talks about it being one big family at BirdLife that looks to learn from the science and then help each other to solve problems all around the world. That exemplifies beautifully what we, as a general public, can do at a grassroots level and the impact that we can have. Patricia is from Ecuador and she's the first woman from a developing country to become CEO of an international conservation organisation, which has typically been a male-dominated sector. Before BirdLife, Patricia was the executive director of the Critical Ecosystem Partnership Fund, which also put civil society at the core of its values, and she led the Conservation Stewards Programme in Conservation International. So this is really someone who knows what good leadership looks like. So in this very first episode, Patricia talks about the ethos of BirdLife, her route into environmental leadership, advice for working towards a similar goal, and finally, as always on this show, she recommends one thing she believes we can all do to move the dial for our planet. So without further ado, let's get into it. Patricia, thank you so much for, for coming on and for talking to me. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, a lot of people have heard of, of BirdLife International, but can you tell us a little bit about the work that it does? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, and to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure how many people have heard about BirdLife International, uh, despite the fact that we are going to be 100 next year, we're um, turning 100 next year. Uh, BirdLife is this extraordinary family of 115 organizations around the world, all of them connected because of their interest in birds, not necessarily because they're working on conservation of birds only, because 80% of our partnership is actually nature conservation organizations, but because we all believe that birds are, an ex are extraordinary ambassadors of nature and help us as indicators of the health of the planet. Um, and um, as I said, we are in a we are 115 partners in 113 countries. So we are the organization that has the highest reach in terms of country presence, but we are operating in a very different way than any other international conservation organization. We are, um, each of our partners are a national conservation organization in their own right. And they all come together as part of the family of BirdLife International. So we are not like WWF or CI or the Nature Conservancy where you end up kind of parachuting programs in different countries. These are kind of grassroots organizations that become part of the family. And in some cases, in countries where civil society is very uh, limited, 
uh, or non-existent, BirdLife comes in and builds up those organizations that then on they become independent conservation organizations and become part of the family. So yeah, so we work with birds, but we work with birds to save life. That's what we are. Yeah, it's quite unique, isn't it? Because it seems like, I mean, like WWF, you know, they start with, with doing their own work, not to say BirdLife doesn't do that, but the focus really is like having the, the members and having that family. And so how does it kind of support each individual members? Is it like, you get big people in and little people in and they all kind of allocate the funds to one another. How does the family work? Well, so multiple things. I mean, we have, um, so the partnership comes together as one every four years and the government of the partnership is democratically elected by all of the 113 partners. Um, And in addition to that, we approve together the global strategy of bird life every 10 years. So we are about to get the new strategy approved next year when we turn 100. Um, and every partner decides how much or how little they are going to contribute to the global strategy. So say, for example, if uh, I am the Egyptian partner and I am in the middle of the Africa Eurasia flyway, I'm going to work with BirdLife on protecting the IBA's important bird areas in Egypt, but I'm also going to contribute to the flyways program and I'm also going to contribute to, say, the climate change through energy uh, um, safeguards, for example. But then there's a bunch of things that I'm doing nationally that don't necessarily uh, are part of the global strategy. So and that's the beauty of the BirdLife partnership, that each partner has the autonomy to really decide how much or how little they, they can or will contribute uh, to the BirdLife strategy as a global um, entity. Mm. But as I said, you know, I have worked in the conservation community longer than I want to admit. Um, and I, I have to say, I have never seen the level of bonding and that uh, feeling of family that you have in the BirdLife uh, partnership. Yeah. It's, it's the, the global partnership meetings are extraordinary experiences of seeing all these people from all corners of the world coming and just hugging each other because it's like, you know, brothers and sisters that haven't seen each other for quite some time. And all of us, you know, really understanding that we are in a very complicated situation with a planet that is under a huge level of threat and that we are still not being able to turn the dial, you know? So in terms of funding, uh, we collaborate. So the the BirdLife team that I manage, the secretariat, raises funding for a a huge amount of members of the partnership, especially the smaller ones. But we work together with the bigger ones as well, and we raise together money so we can actually support the little ones. So it depends heavily on what is the approach or what is the type of program that we're implementing. But but yeah, there's a lot of... um, camaraderie um and that feeling as i said of family yeah that's lovely i feel like collaboration i mean that's something that we're trying to push here as well and everyone i speak to is like yeah collaborate collaborate we need to be a family it seemed like that's kind of the way out of this right the the sort of role of collaboration in environmentalism that's what i love about bird life is that it's really focusing on getting everyone together and talking rather than people being competitors yeah and you know i think this is the in my personal view and this is not bird life's Uh, position. This is my personal position. I think the biggest failure of the conservation community has been that we haven't been working together. Mm. And I have been, from now my position as a chief executive, I have been pushing a lot to try to get that happen. And I, you know, there are times when I think and I try to rationalize why this is not happening. And I go back to to the funding model that we all have in terms of begging for funding and trying to get money from donors which we puts us un, 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 unavoidably on competition in competition with one another. But I think it's also 
and and for um, you know my fellow CEOs of the conservation community, with the exception of one, may um, may feel offended about this. But I think you know traditionally it's also a community that has been led by men. And I love all of the CEOs of the conservation community. I work very well with all of them. But there's a very strong element of you know elbowing and yeah, and yeah. and I think that's what has to change because otherwise we're not going to make it happen. Yeah. Well. This feels like the right place to be talking about it. Uh, so, uh, and what is your your role as a CEO? Is it like people coming together and you're kind of the hosting the family? If you're like, they're all hugging and you're just there like, oh, my children. Or is it more, <laughs> I mean, is it different to what you'd expect at somewhere like WWF? Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't been a CEO no, for true, WWF yes. organizations, right? I mean, look, I mean, in terms of the Burley family, my role is to first and foremost, be the biggest cheerleader of the partnership, look into those opportunities where I can uh, really help them to learn from each other and build up that uh, strengthening, you know, each of these organizations in the different countries, because we will be only as strong as the weakest partner. But also, I think it is looking into all these wonderful things that we can do together and we can help scale up, you know. So just, just to give you an example, you know, we have this extraordinary alliance of uh, ranchers in South America, in Paraguay, Uruguay, uh, Argentina, and Brazil. Over 5,000 ranchers, you know, managing half a million hectares of grasslands that would be under threat because of the expansion of the soy production. And they are, you know, we are helping them maintain their cultural management of cattle. Uh, It's from production of beef, it's very high quality beef, but it's also one that is actually keeping carbon on the soil. And also one that is helping us maintain grasslands that are absolutely crucial for birds, not only uh, migrant birds, but especially local birds. Uh, So once you have something like that with four partners, you know, four countries, then you bring that model to other countries. So we're starting to work in Colombia. And I think there's a huge opportunity of working like that in the grasslands in Central Asia. So my role as the CEO, the way that I see it, and, and I'm trying to remember who said this, or if I read it uh, at some point in one of the Harvard Business Review magazines, but the CEO is the connecting the dots person, right? And I think that's what I, uh, what I bring to the table is that opportunity of seeing the partnership in action and then saying, hey guys, you know, like when I just started, I visited Burleigh, South Africa, and they were developing this amazing project to trace uh, the white flaff tail that was uh, migrating or that is migrating from South Africa to Ethiopia. But they, it's a tiny little bird and they couldn't put trackers on them because normally the tra- satellite trackers are too heavy for that these type of birds or at that time they were. Um, so then I said, guys, why are you not talking to the Canadians? You know, uh, Birds Canada has developed this MOTU system that is a mobile antenna. It's not a satellite tracker. It actually works with mobile network. You know, then you can start tracking them with this, this type of tracker that is a lot lighter that actually functions with warblers in the America. So we could actually put it in the fluff tail. So it's kind of that connecting the dots part yeah. um, that is my key role. I fundraise every second of my day um I, and i want to bring more funding because god knows that we need more money for making this happen uh but i think as i said at the beginning my biggest and more important role is to be the cheerleader of this partnership and figuring out how we can get better known how we can make sure that the amazing work that these partners are doing on all corners of the world is known and and i it can be replicated and 
supported by many other conservation organizations. Yeah, that sounds so fun. Just learning constant conservation. I mean, is it fun? I know you've kind of oh. hands, hands aside, you've got to say you enjoy it, right? <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I mean, it is, you know, it's difficult. I, ha- I cannot say that it's, it has been easy. And the difficult part is not the conservation. The, the, the conservation part is the, the rewarding, wonderful part of it, uh, despite the fact that we are, you know, in an uphill battle. Um, I think the part that is difficult of being a CEO is that you have to deal with all of the operational stuff, right? And and BirdLife has grown organically all these years, um, has been, someone put it as a hundred year old startup that hasn't really invested that much on the back office infrastructure. So when I came from a very competent and strong conservation organization in the US to come into BirdLife, I found a wonderful family business that wanted to be an organization. So over the last five years, I've spent a lot of my time trying to get the back office in place, you know, the finances, the financial systems, the fundraising system, the HR systems, making sure that all those pieces that are kind of the gears that allow you to make the conservation happen are in place. So then you can actually get the conservation. I mean, I love the conservation stuff. I love learning from the partners. I love, you know, this morning I woke up, and I was on the phone with Berlef South Africa talking about the decline of the African penguin and how they are actually, they were just having a meeting with the Minister of Environment of South Africa because we have to start cutting the, the fishing quotas. Otherwise, those, the population of that uh, of the penguins are going to go absolutely busted. So how can I help with that? Can I write to the minister? Can I get the rest of the BirdLife partnership behind us so we can put pressure on the on on the on the South African government? Can we look for alternatives for the fishermen? Can we think about different ways? So that's the fun part. It's it's harder, you know, the drier part of managing an organization, and you have to you have to do it. There's no sure. way around. It sounds wildly overwhelming, I have to say. But okay, so for those people who are who are listening to that though, because your background wasn't necessarily in in the organizational managerial side, was it? Did you start as an ecologist? I started as an environmental scientist, yes. Uh, after trying to be an, a, a, a failed architect um, uh, or a, a wanting to be architect uh, that discovered uh, nature and environment through birds. And then I, yeah, no, I did environmental sciences and I worked with the Ecuadorian government for three years, managing incredibly complicated projects in the Amazon where oil and gas is still being exploited in national parks and trying to make a, make sense of that and how can you balance out the needs, the economic needs of the country with the incredible natural wealth that that country has. Mm. So then I did a master's in economics, not a management. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, so I'm, uh, I'm also an economist. I did environmental economics for um, a Duke uh, for two years as a master's. And then I worked a lot on modeling ecosystem services and payments for ecosystem services uh, and building up markets for, say, nitrogen and phosphorus um, reductions in the Mississippi Basin and the Chesapeake Bay. But looking into, I, I really missed doing conservation and, and I went back. Uh, to my conservation roots, thinking about all these tools about economics, of course, but learning through the process all of these managerial uh, tools and skills, I, I guess. And, and I have to say, I, I am incredibly grateful to all of the support that I got from donors and from CI when I was working with Conservation International and doing a lot of training on management, because that helps. Uh, you know, those are incredible tools that help you. I mean, whether you are the CEO of a small NGO or, or a big NGO or a project manager, 
that is managing a team, management skills are absolutely necessary no matter what happens. Yeah. Well, it's such an interesting background because I'm thinking while I'm asking you about this and your background, I'm thinking about people who want to get into management positions or who aren't even thinking about it, but suddenly it might be piquing their interest because a lot of people who get into science or conservation start off so specialized as ecologists or a fish ecologist, or they do a PhD on a single species in the Amazon rainforest on a Thursday, you know, it's all so specific. Obviously, you did the, the masters, but what do you think of the, some of the best experiences you had that actually led you more into the managerial managerial side of things? Were there were there people? Was there someone who told you you'd be really good at this? Go into this. <laughs> uh, I'm not, well, I don't know. I mean, I think as you keep progressing, unless you actually want to stay in a very specific uh, type of intervention with a, you know managing a specific project, and I'm thinking. I, I had the immense fortune of um, being given the freedom of designing a program in CI when I took over the, the, the leadership of the Conservation Stewards Program. That is a program that works with local communities, uh, identifying the opportunity cost for those local communities to do conservation, and then they sign conservation agreements. So they, in the, that case, CI or other NGOs, we actually do them as well in BirdLife commit to a specific benefits that are provided to the community in exchange for them committing to do conservation. And that was by far the the most amazing experience that I had in terms of seeing the the potential impact that you can have in conservation. And, you know, I I did that for five years. I loved it. Uh, Every minute of it. um, I was at the end, I was working in 17 countries. We had developed a national program in Ecuador. We were working with four provinces in China where the Chinese government uh, had decided to change a national subsidy that was applied in those provinces to transform grains to green, uh, to change, you know, crazy planting of forests to conserving forests that were standing and getting those communities in those four provinces to work. And then, you know, we had a lot of really extraordinary success, but there's a point when you say, okay, if we want this to keep working, you have to step out and let others take the lead. Uh, right? Because it is important to make sure that those programs and those ideas live beyond you. And I think at those, one of the things that I have done either by virtue of design or virtue of luck is that I have had the opportunity of moving from different spaces in the conservation community, from project implementer and project designer and program designer to being a donor. And I think on in those spaces, while you keep switching and changing, you start acquiring those management skills and then you find out whether you like it or not because not everybody likes yeah. managing right I mean and if you like it and I do like managing people I love empowering people to get things done it's, good um, you said that it's about empowering yeah. I am absolutely convinced you know I am totally convinced that as and this is why I said as the CEO I'm the cheerleader I'm not the one who's doing you know, what I'm doing is empowering people under me, underneath me and, with, and throughout the partnerships for them to be the best that they yeah. can do, you know, and then the best that they can be. Um, and I think that is that is the mantra of a, a good, well, I mean, you can, check, you can check with my people whether I am a good manager <laughs> or not. But, <laughs> but I, th- I truly believe that good management comes from that sense of empowerment and giving you the chance to try um, and giving you the tools to be able to succeed when you're trying. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what do you think is the biggest challenge that you face getting there mm. or just in your career? I mean, so one thing that um, 
I, I think it's on BirdLife actually, but they they're very proud, very rightly, to say that you are the first woman from the developing country to be CEO of a major conservation organization. Was there anything along the way that you think was more difficult being a woman from a developing country? Um, no, I think I mean this is probably the place where I have felt and and because until just recently when Jen Morris became the, the 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 chief executive of the Nature Conservancy and I guess a little well uh, when I started BirdLife when with BirdLife I was the first woman of the developing world um, and then uh, Inger Andersen took over IUCN she's Danish to me the biggest element was not so much that I was from a developing country but it, that I was a woman and, and, and as I said at the beginning, I, this, this world has been traditionally a very uh, alpha male <laughs> driven world. You know, it's, uh, if you look at the traditionally the chief executives of all these conservation organizations, they have been men. I think, I think it's just tradition that it has happened that way. Um, but it's, it, you know, it, it, it has been hard and it has been harder for me to push things through the community uh, and I feel it is because it's coming per- partly because Berlev is a smaller organization compared to the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think partly because I, I'm a woman as well. Um, so just to give you an example, uh, back in, in September 2018, when before, so the Convention of Biological Diversity, the meeting of the COP, of the Convention of, of the Conference of the Parties was coming together in Egypt in October. In September, I was in Washington, D.C., and I helped convene uh, a meeting of the big conservation organizations to try to get together uh, from the civil society perspective, what was our ambition for this, what was going to be the meeting last year in 2020 for the new deal for nature, right? And I said, guys, we have to get together and we have to have a common plea right now. I mean, this is the time, it's now or never. We have to push for this. So we convened uh, Tom Lovejoy, who's a member of my advisory group and who happens to be also a board member for many of their conservation organizations, helped me uh, put this meeting together at the, at the National Geographic Society. At, um, Jonathan Bailey was there at that point. And we brought everybody together, said, okay, guys, we have to work together. Let's make it happen, kind of infusing the energy. Just, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. <laughs> then we met again in October in Egypt. And I said, okay, guys, now is the time. We're all here. Let's make it work. Nothing happened. And then, you know, a, a year later, uh, Marco Lambertini from WWF comes and says, Guys, we have to get together. Let's make it happen. And everybody comes, you know. It's so <laughs> annoying. There's <laughs> that guy, you know? isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it's, you know, to a certain degree, I sit, sit back and say, okay, finally, it's happening. That's what matters, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not that I make it ha- made it happen or Marco made it happen. It's the fact that it's actually happening. And, and for the first time in the history, I think we're coming together and saying, yes, this is the topic. This is how we're going to talk about it. We're all pushing together. Yeah. Um, and I, I still don't think that we're there, but, you know, we are making progress. And yeah. <laughs> just relay all your ideas through. No, don't do that. I'm joking, yeah. of course. God, that's, that is so annoying when someone just comes into a room and it's like, hey, what about this? Oh, damn it. That was my idea. Um, yeah, maybe you loosen the jar for them. Um, with, okay, well, that, with that in mind, would you give, let's focus on young girls who are looking to get into conservation, but also leadership positions. Would you give them any advice well, I mean, I think it's important for them to realize that it's hard. It is hard. You know, I, I, I ran into this amazing woman um, in India two years ago. 
I think it was one of the last trips that I made. Uh, we gave her a prize because she's done extraordinary work with amphibians in India, identifying. I mean, it's an it's a it's um, amphibians have not been very well studied in all India, and she was discovering you know new species right, left, and center. But she said, you know, it was one of the hardest things that I did because I had to. I had to convince my parents that it was okay for me to be up in the middle of the night chasing frogs. So it is hard, uh, but at the same time, you know, I think, and I don't want, I don't know how will this sound, but um, I think women have a special connection to the planet and to earth, you know? I mean, there is that element of nurturing that we, because we're mothers or we're designed to be mothers, have and and it is incredibly rewarding. Um, it is very frustrating uh, and it can be hard. I think the world is also changing and opening a lot more than it was when when I was a young girl uh, and decided that I wanted to work on conservation. And my advice would be persistence. You know, you're gonna make it happen. Don't let anyone tell you. And this, I have ten-year-old uh, twin girls, and I keep telling them and said. Don't let anyone tell you that you cannot do something. You are capable of doing anything that you put your mind to. And if it is your passion, if you feel that conserving this planet and saving the earth and saving nature is your goal, go for it. Um, we're all going to be behind you. Um, it is hard, but it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah, awesome. Great advice. And are they following in your footsteps? Are they going into conservation? Well, I don't know. There's, there are only 10. <laughs> yeah, we'll make, we'll make them listen to this and then we'll try and... Um, no, that's fine. 10, 10 is... 10 is I'm a teacher as well. And, you know, by 18, I'm like, you don't have to have it sorted. So... <laughs> life changes and and sometimes you you know I wanted to be a doctor and then I ended up being my first year of university was in architecture and graphic design so you know I I I would say whatever you put your mind to it just just understand that there's always going to be obstacles and that if you persevere you're going to overcome them yeah and what advice would you give a young you starting your career um I would say listen to your gut a lot more there's an, an element of instinct that sometimes we feel incredibly insecure to, to follow because we feel that we are so inexperienced. But instinct is an incredible advisor. You know, your gut knows. Also, um, you know, and, 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 and I think if, if I would go back, I would, I would learn to fundraise a lot more yeah. sooner. <laughs> um, hopefully, you know, we will be able to I, and I don't know how, hopefully we will be able to, to value nature much more and to the point that it doesn't need to be done on nonprofit fundraising efforts. But for now, I would say, yes, definitely. Fundraising is a skill that mm. one has to learn early and that it will continue throughout your life. So don't be shy. But the other thing that I would say, Max, is don't be shy to ask for help. You know, sometimes we feel incredibly, I don't know what the word is, but almost stupid that you don't want to ask for help because, you know, you feel that what are they going to say? I mean, they're probably going to judge you on the fact that you're asking for help. And and most, in you know, 99% of the times, people are so willing to give you a hand. Mm. So, yeah, so don't be shy. I've got to say, as someone, because for people who do want to go into leadership positions, that's probably really true where they don't want to seem like they're unsure and so they won't ask for help, even though they're the people who are trying to get into those positions and, and learn, you know. So it's an interesting sort of paradox, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's uh, it's hard. And I think 
in that sense, women have it harder because we are a lot more insecure for whatever reason we're being, you know, and this is what I tell my girls, like, you know, better than you think you do. Yeah. Um, and I think it's that element of insecurity that sometimes pushes us back and don't allows us to just, you know, tend a hand and reach for help. Yeah, absolutely. Just going back to, um, to some priorities of bird life. So one thing that actually, this is kind of a selfish question because I've always wanted to know this, is how priorities are set in an organization like that. So I remember Greenpeace really pushed things like palm oil back in the day, you know, and they thought, okay, this is great. And then palm oil led to a lot of deforestation and they kind of had to retract that and think, okay, now we shouldn't use so much palm oil. And not that's not necessarily a fault. That's just how the world develops and you can't really see those things happening. But how do you manage all of the different priorities of environmental science, because it seems like it's the most complicated social thing as well, where you've got to say, okay, the world is now using palm oil. The world is now using soy products. You know, should we be eating oat milk or drinking oat milk and stuff like that? But then all of that gets, gets kind of abused. And I know that, you know, bird life is primarily about birds, but does that come into it where you've really got to manage loads of different ideas? How is it that you kind of say, well, our focus is this, we need to focus on this. Okay, so this is the magic of bird life, okay? And as I said at the beginning, birds are extraordinary ambassadors of nature and very good indicators of the health of the planet. So 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago now, um, BirdLife created something that is called uh, the criteria for the important birds and biodiversity areas. So it was looking at what are those places that are the most important places for nature that we need to save? I mean, in a planet as big as ours, where do we concentrate recognizing that we don't have all of the resources of the planet? So we created the criteria for the IBAs and that was quickly adopted by the European Union uh, to set up the footprint of the uh, Natura 2000 network. So the Natura 2000 network for those of you in America is the most important regional network of protected areas in the planet. Okay, and that came from the BirdLife sites. Now, speaking of co about collaboration, one of my biggest successes with BirdLife was launching the Key Biodiversity Area Partnership. So right at the time when I was arriving, BirdLife was negotiating with other conservation organizations. How can we use the IBA criteria for other taxa? So not only for birds, but for amphibians, for mammals, for, other, for plants, for fungi, everything. So we can truly say on the planet, these are the most important priorities and say it together you know, going back to the collaboration element. Yeah. So key biodiversity areas, that is a partnership of over 14 conservation organizations right now, identify the most important places on earth and oceans that have to be protected. So th that's kind of your entry point, yeah? I mean, it just so happens that 89% of those sites are actually important for birds. So if you are actually protecting bird sites, you're protecting most of nature, on sea and land, propaganda aside. <laughs> <laughs> but so, one of the, the reasons why I moved to BirdLife was because of our science, okay? BirdLife has used the science of birds as an extraordinary um, conduit to identify what's happening with the rest of the planet. And you may not know this, but BirdLife is the most cited entity of conservation and environment science in the UK, and it's number 24 in the planet. And this is comparing to universities, comparing to academic acad academics, um, institutions, comparing to science institutions. Um, you know, the National Academy of Sciences of the United States, for example, is part of this list, but we are number 24. 
Um, anyways, so we use that science to identify the most important and pressing issues. So let's let's think about marine issues for one second. We look into what's happening in terms of marine birds and what are the most important threats. So there's two big threats in terms of marine birds. Invasive species in islands, because that's where they nest, and very close to it, bycatch of fisheries. So fishermen and longliners mainly, and not only longliners, but also gillnets, put their um, lines on the sea. Albatrosses, petrels, and other big, big birds come and try to get the bait from the lines, get hooked, get drowned. And when the fishermen are bring, bringing the lines back, they're having tons of birds. I mean, we were losing uh, 400,000 albatrosses a year. I mean, you just imagine, right? So we started working. So you identify those threats and then you say, okay, how are we going to tackle them? And then we start working and saying, okay, albatrosses and petrels and petrels around the Southern oceans, eight countries, key fisheries, basically tuna and long lining. Uh, let's work with the fishermen and find solutions. And sometimes it's really simple solutions, Max. I mean, yeah. the Albatross Task Force found out that if you put scare lines, you know, like flags alongside of the line that is going down into the ocean, the birds don't come to the to the bait right. and the fishermen are happy because they're not getting birds in their hooks. So we work with fishermen. We created jobs for women that can create the scare lines. Fishermen are happy. And then with that experience, we come to the governments and say, okay, guys, we have to put a regulation. You have to have scare lines on all of your long lining because otherwise we're going to get keep birds drowning. But the key thing here is that the minute that you start understanding what's happening with these birds, then you start understanding that there's a lot of other problems. I talked about the penguins this morning. Yeah. Right. Or my conversation with Bird of South Africa this morning. The African penguin is tanking because the fisheries in South Africa are overfished. You know, the, the fishing stocks are plummeting. So what does that mean? That we're leaving empty oceans and the birds are telling us. So the birds are the ambassadors of, and the messenger. And, you know, it's, it's the proverbial canary in the coal mine. They are telling us that something wrong is happening in the oceans. It's not that they're dying just because they're dying. They are dying because there's no fish and there's no fish because we're overfishing. So let's control the problem. So that's how we prioritize. We have a lovely strategy and, and now the 10-year strategy that we're going to launch next year comes and says, okay, there are three key foundations of bird, bird life. Birds, our partnership that is unique, and our science. And over those three foundations, we have four pillars. We're working with birds to protect them. We're working their, with their sites because we know that unless we protect those important birds and biodiversity sites, we're not going to make it happen. But we are connecting them and building up landscapes and seascapes and the flyways because they migrate, right? And then we're going to tackle the most important threats to nature because by protecting species and sites is not enough. We're going to tackle, you know, with many, many others. And I will tell you about trillion trees in a minute, but we're going to work on climate change, on agriculture, on fisheries and on financial flows because nature is completely underfunded, but the money is on the table. We're spending 50 times more money destroying the planet than investing on it. So if we just shift that a little bit, some of those tactics into incentives, we can make it happen. And then we're going to mobilize the world with us. You know, the BirdLife Partnership is in 113 countries. We can mobilize more people than any other conservation organization with them and with them. And, and one of the big mantras that I have is we have to keep reaching out beyond the BirdLife family. And we have a couple of really extraordinary experiences with WWF and WWF UK and WCS, we have a big initiative that is called Trillion Trees. 
to plant, restore, and protect a trillion trees by 2050. Uh, but we are, you know, as I said, bringing them together and working with them to, to have a common voice for the, goal, the global goal for nature in hopefully 2021 when the Kunming meeting happens, but also working with them with the KVA partnership. I mean, the, the lovely thing and the unique thing about Berlec is that DNA of partnership and collaboration. Mm. And that, just on that, because that's quite a big deal, particularly now when I feel like conservation is making a bit of a shift into it's becoming quite proactive. Like, there's obviously a big push for um, reintroduction projects here in the UK. But the idea or the structure of bird life presumably means that you get new ideas constantly and being able to expand must be quite an exciting thing. I don't know if that's a priority of bird life. Well, there's a, there's a huge amount of innovation uh, and innovation on the ground. Uh, innovation that happens because these people realize what works and what doesn't. So, you know, I was talking about the scare lines in the, in the fishing hooks in, in South Africa, Namibia, or Argentina. But there are so many others, you know, the, the Lebanese partner, for example, has been working with local communities that, that are using ways of managing the land that was the way that Mesopotamia used to, use, used to do it, you know, with women in charge <laughs> to begin with. Um, but, you know, really taking care of the resources, and it's called the Hima. Um, is is the is the Arab name of taking care of the land? What's it called? Sorry, Ahima. Hima. Hima. Yeah, and they are now replicating that and resuscitating really a traditional way of managing resources that actually helps the communities also to get better organized, and that's being replicated. And now we want to go beyond Lebanon. So how do we take that to other parts of the Arab world and to the Middle East? And how can we actually make sure? that we are nurturing that traditional way of management. Or, you know, as I said before, when we were talking about the grasslands and the ranchers in South America, how can we replicate that and take it to Central Asia? Because there's lots of grasslands in Central Asia and, and similar problems, you know, yeah, maybe not cattle for beef, but it's actually yaks for Kashmir. Um, so how can we connect those spaces? Um, and I think it's that level of innovation when you are really on the ground that makes a huge difference. I think the lovely element of Berlife is that you have those two spaces. You are creating or bringing together all of that fantastic innovation on the ground, but also matching it with the new trends that are coming from, you know, the big conservation organizations talking to each other. And how can we match those two? And this is where we come together and, and, and where we play an incredibly important role coming and saying, okay, guys, the world is talking about carbon, a carbon market. How can we actually put it together? What, where are our forests? What, can, what do we have to do? What do we have to do to really empower those, those communities? Not necessarily the bird life partners, but those communities that own the forest. So they cannot be taken advantage of when the carbon market is, is up and running again. Or how do we make sure, you know, now we're talking about uh, green bonds and uh, nature bonds and what happens with the information for biodiversity or, or the information about biodiversity for the financial markets. How do we make sure that that information really flows from the ground all throughout to Wall Street and London City and, you know, the Hong Kong State Exchange? So it's, it's realizing that it is a parallel, almost a parallel world, and you have to play that role from the grassroots building up the innovation that that gets, gets scaled up, but also those models that be, are being discussed in, in the higher levels and then bringing them down and making them real also sometimes. Yeah. 
you've listed quite a few ways that you sort of connect with people, but it is a grassroots thing. This is all meant to be grassroots for people and particularly for women who are disproportionately affected just around the world generally. How is it that you kind of give people voices in communities? And I've just finished a really wonderful book by Mary Robinson called Climate Justice. Mm-hmm. And it taught, it gives some examples and stories about women who have done great things in their community and then sort of ended up at COP and talking in front of rooms of people. How is it that communities are given voices in that way? Well, but that's that's the lovely thing about Burnout, right? I mean, we are 113 organizations that work directly with communities on the ground. I mean, I was telling you about the HIMAS, right? In Lebanon. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly the same thing with, or, or the, the women that are actually doing the skirt lines in Namibia and South Africa for the fishermen. To me, that is the magic of bird life, that bird life organizations, the partners of bird life are national conservation organizations that have the legitimacy to connect directly with their communities and not be seen as expats that are coming with a solution to be parachuted in your country. And that to me makes, I mean, I look, I work with international conservation organizations all my life. I've never seen the power of the legitimacy that a national partner like bird life's partners on the ground have when they are actually engaging with local communities, when they are engaging with the local farmers, when they're looking, engaging with their local fishers, indigenous people, you know, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see. And it is because they are national, they are local and they're grassroots. And there's a whole element of empowering. Um, so one of the things that Berlef created very early on uh, was something that is called the local conservation groups. So looking into these IBAs around the world, and there are 13,000 IBAs around the world, partners look into having volunteers and supporters for each of these IBAs and local groups that are helping to protect these areas. So whether they are communities that live there and that we empower them to do it better and to have an income out of protecting those sites, or whether it is a group of volunteers in Buenos Aires that are actually helping the protection of a key site in Mendoza. So is that feeling again of that DNA of collaboration that we need to work together um, and that we really embrace that element of having local partners and local members of the partners being part of the global community. Sure and with that in mind right now I'm in the Cotswolds in in the UK and I'm thinking how can I get involved what are, what is it that people could do who might not be involved in bird life they might not be working on these projects but they, you know they might work in finance or do something completely different what is it that people could do to sort of get involved in bird life? I mean, there are many ways of getting involved. Um, and you can either become a member of one of our partners. So in, if you're in the UK, join the RSPB. Or if you are in Portugal, join SPEA. Or if you're in the US, join either the American Bird Conservancy or the Audubon Society. And is there a list, sorry to interrupt just there, but is there a list on your website of all your partners? Yes. And you can click on your country and then you can click on the website of the partner and become a member. Or uh, you can be a volunteer, uh, whether it is working directly on uh, restoring areas and protecting trees or, you know, being part of the voices that go to Brussels and tells the European Commission to get their act together on the common agricultural policy or support bird life. I mean, the minute that you support us um, and and by many ways, not, not only financially, but spreading the word, I think the biggest the biggest need that we need right now or the yeah the biggest am i speaking english yeah. yes the big- <laughs> better than i am trust me it's- <laughs> uh, yeah the, the biggest need that we have right now is for people to understand that we are 
threatening nature more than ever, 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 ever has happened. For whatever reason, you know, we have seven, well, no, almost nine billion people now in the planet. And the fraction who know about this is so small that I think the biggest, the biggest need is to spread the word and tell the world that we are really a big problem. Uh, so in that everybody has a role to play and that you don't have to be incredibly rich uh, or to give a lot of money. You can make decisions that impact nature every second of your life. Yeah, that's it just led beautifully to the action part of this, which is what can what thing would you recommend that people do, even if it's not getting involved or volunteering or but lifestyle wise, what's the one thing that you recommend people do that would move the dial for our planet? I think putting nature at the heart of everything that you do from the time when you wake up to the time when you go to bed. Uh, so everything we do impacts nature, you know, so how long you're showering, the type of food that you buy, uh, the type of clothing that you wear, uh, how much you drive versus you cycle, how much you are jumping on a plane and running, you know, to the other corner of the world versus doing a Zoom call for that, or, you know, supporting an organization like ours and just passing on when you are on your Facebook or your Instagram or your Twitter feed, just pass on the messages of the organizations that are fighting for the planet. Uh, people need to hear this. So I, I think the, the, the biggest plea from my side is tell the world that this is happening. Tell your friends, tell your family that we need to join forces and protect the planet. I think it's changing. I think it's getting there, but we still need to do more. And I think the biggest thing that we can do is just keep thinking and remembering that we're one, one of millions of species in this planet and that we have the unique responsibility to protect it. We are destroying it. We have to fix it. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into this. For new listeners, which is everybody at this stage, we really, really want to hear from you. We want this show to evolve with your ideas. Everything we talk about is really meant for the benefit of you guys anyway. So if you have feedback, questions, topic ideas, guest suggestions, I'll do my absolute best to accommodate them. Please do like, subscribe, rate the show. It all helps on getting the message out and continuing the discussion. Just like Patricia said, talking about this regularly is really key. So the email to contact is max at marbonline.org. That's M-A-X at M-A-H-B online.org. Put our new world in the heading and away you go. I'm really looking forward to this journey with all of you. Till next time. This show is sponsored by the Millennium Alliance for Humanity and the Biosphere, or the MOB for short. Music by Scott Holmes Music. Hosted and produced by me, Max Winpenny. <laughs>